I invite you to remain standing for the reading of Scripture. We'll read from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Join me. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Brandon Blackson. I'm an associate pastor here. I'm excited to be with you, excited to share this message, and, and grateful for the opportunity. We're starting a new sermon series today. As you uh, could see from the video, we're starting our Vacation Bible School series. That starts in, in just over two weeks. I don't think our, our um, volunteer leaders are, are too panicked yet, but uh, the time is coming, and we're going to be going through over the next several weeks the scriptures that our children will be learning, the children from our church and from the community that they'll be studying as their Vacation Bible School. And we we hope that as we go through this together that we might be a part of their spiritual journey. And, um, and because whenever we're a part of this church, whenever a child is baptized or, or becomes a member, we make the promise that we're going to support them, that we will pray for them and encourage them, and that we'll teach them to follow Jesus, to be a true disciple who walks in the way that leads to life. And so one of the ways that we do that is by walking alongside them as they're going through things like Bible school. And this is a unique opportunity that we have to really pour into their lives and support them for several days in a row. And so it's a great opportunity for us as their church family and, and a great opportunity for you all, I think, too, because these actually are not children's stories. I know that's surprising, but the Bible's for all of us. And so uh, this is an opportunity for us to, uh, to hear God's word and, and to grow together. And so today we're embarking on an adventure of a lifetime. And um, as, as we've been preparing for this, and, and actually before I get too far in front of me, one of the things that the children will be doing whenever they're at Bible school is they'll have a memory verse that, that will take them through the week. And so I want to share that with you and encourage you to, uh, to work on memorizing this. The verse is, when you pass through the waters... I will be with you. That's from Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2. So will you say that with me? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. All right, that's pretty good. I mean, you're reading it, so I expect it to be good, but, but, but that's good. So we're going to try it one more time, but this time we're going to take off the training wheels. So say it with me. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Hey, that, that sounded really good. So, so I encourage you to, to remember that. That's on the top of your sermon notes. And if you haven't done so, I invite you to take those out at this point. Um, we have some blanks for you to fill in, an opportunity for you to take notes. And my prayer is in preparing this that someplace during this sermon that you hear God speaking to you. And so uh, you'll have that if you'd like to write that down. As I've been preparing this, I was reminded of a time whenever I was maybe eight or ten, and I was riding bikes with a friend, and we were just going around, and he led us to, to another guy's house, this friend of his whom I didn't know, and, and so we were just kind of hanging out, riding bikes, and, and, and doing whatever we did whenever we were that age, and um, I guess some of the memories have faded away, but, but at some point, my friend decided that he was going to try to convince this other guy of something, that, that for some reason, he, he needed him to believe whatever it was he was telling him. And apparently it was a hard sell, which, which caused me to think, I don't remember exactly what it was that he was trying to tell him, but I'm thinking it probably was not true if he 
was trying this hard to convince him. So he, he was making this argument and trying as hard as he could to be convincing, and, and so he decided to rope me into it. And, and to bolster the credibility of his argument, he said, ask Brandon, and, and this is the selling point, he's really religious. Like, that's how you know that you can trust him, is he's really religious. It's interesting, now I'm a religious professional, and some people trust me less than they otherwise would have. That comes with the territory, I guess. But, but I, I don't remember what we were talking about. I, I don't remember how I responded. Hopefully, I, I, I was honest like a really religious person should be. But, but the main thing I remember is, whoa, I am not really religious. That, that's what I was thinking. I was worried because that's how he was identifying me. And, you know, I, I went to church and, and Sunday school most weeks, and it, it wasn't really my choice at that point, but, but my parents took me. But I didn't want to be identified by that. that. That was something I did sometimes, but I didn't want people to think of me as one of those really religious people. I, was, I, I responded, I, I'm the socially acceptable level of religiosity. That's, I had a really great vocabulary whenever I was eight. But as I think about that, I think that's true for a lot of us, and it's true for me sometimes, is, is that our, our relationship with Christ, that, that our faith is sometimes something that, that is important to us, it's a part of our life, but it's not necessarily at the center of who we are, and, and we don't want to be identified by it. It's, it's nice if, if it's there when we need it, you know, it's there for, for an hour at 1045 on Sunday whenever we're in worship, and then, you know, we can just kind of leave it in, in its uh, little sphere over here and go about the rest of our, our life, and, you know, we've got this, this religious part of our life, but then we've got our family life, our work life, our, our fun, leisure life, and, and all of these other boxes, and sometimes we just kind of leave it in there. I think one of the problems that we have, I know it's a problem that I have sometimes, is that we frequently see Christianity as a lifestyle choice instead of a way of life, as, as a lifestyle choice instead of a way of life. And we make lifestyle choices every day. Whenever I got up this morning, the first thing that I did is I kind of zombie walked over to, to my coffee and, and I made some. And I like to have fresh ground coffee every morning. And that's one of my lifestyle choices that I make. And some people tell me that, that being so picky about my coffee is also a snobbish lifestyle choice. But, but there it is. That, that's who you have speaking to you this morning. But, but we make all kinds of choices and from, the, from what kind of cars that we drive. And, and uh, whenever I bought my last car, I decided to buy a used car in, instead of a new car. That was a lifestyle choice. It, it was one that was influenced by my bank account, but still a lifestyle <laughs> choice. Whenever we moved here, we, we bought a house instead of renting. And uh, whenever, whenever I go home today, I'm either going to choose to work in the yard. Okay, that's definitely not going to happen. I could choose to work in the yard. I could choose to watch TV. I could choose to read a book. Probably I'm going to choose to do whatever my daughter decides that we're doing because she's three and, and she's kind of the boss of the household. But all of those are lifestyle choices. They're things that, that we choose. A lot of times it has to do with the things that we buy. And, and all of those things are, are nice. You know, Well, I guess most of them are nice. They're, they're neither good nor bad in and of themselves, but if you take any of them away, none of them is going to dramatically affect our lifestyle. Like, if you take away my coffee, okay, maybe that's a bad example, but I mean, if, if you take away my TV, like, I'm fundamentally still the same person. I just don't spend time watching TV. It's a lifestyle choice. It affects me, but it's not fundamental to who I am, and I think often we, we see our faith like that. 
one of the ways that I um, learned this was, was through living in rural communities. And one of the things that Courtney and I, my wife Courtney and I like to do is, is we like to garden. We grow vegetables. And, um, and so usually we'll have, a, have a, a garden plot with tomatoes. We'll grow okra. We'll try to grow squash. You know, everybody has like these squash plants that just produce far more than they can ever. You know, people like can't, will beg you to take their squash away. Have you all ever experienced that? We've never had squash do that. Well, I don't know what our problem is but apparently we're not great gardeners, but we still like it. But, you know, if, if our garden fails, and, and, and a lot of times it does because we're busy during the summer, we're gone for mission trips and church camp and vacation, and, you know, we mean to water, but we forget, and we mean to weed and pick and all those things. And sometimes, most years at some point, our, our garden kind of uh, goes downhill, let's say, before it should have. And, uh, and that doesn't fundamentally affect our life. You know, we, we buy a few extra tomatoes at the grocery store and that's it. But gardening's not a way of life for us. It's just, it's a lifestyle choice. It's something that we do. Whenever we're in these rural communities, I learned about farming. Now, now I'm city to my core. I, I'm 100% a city boy. I had somebody after the last service who came up to me said, yeah, that's obvious in everything that you said. <laughs> so. I appreciate the affirmation. I'm not representing myself any other way. But, but I did have the opportunity while I lived in a farming community to drive a combine. So, of course, I had to get a picture. That's me during wheat harvest uh, sometime during June, maybe three or four years ago, uh, driving a combine. Not pictured as the farmer who was operating every single control except the steering wheel. And, uh, and if, if I let us off the path, he could reach right over and steer that too. But that was fine with me. But, but I, you know, if you're a farmer, that, that's a way of life in a way that is not true of most other jobs. I mean, it dictates everything that you do from the time that you get up in the morning till the time that you go to bed. It dictates the way that, that you schedule your time, that you're subject to the seasons, you're subject to rain, and, and you don't get a choice. And if you raise cattle, you're likely at any time of night to get called because your cattle got out and you've got to come and get them back in. And if you, you know, my garden, I could take a few weeks off and, you know, it, we, we lose our tomatoes and, and that's all we have to do. If you take a few weeks off from farming, like you're going to have to find a new way to feed your family because that's the way that you provide it. It's fundamentally a way of life. I think that's what Jesus intends for our faith. Not, not that our faith should feed us, but uh, well, anyway, that's probably a metaphor we don't need to get into, but, but for it to be a way of life not just something that, that we keep in a nice sphere in, in a box that's there when we need it and we can pick up and set down for a while and then pick up again when we feel like it, but it's something that's fundamental to who we are and the way that we live. Rowan Williams talks about it this way. He talks about discipleship, being disciples, followers of Jesus. He says, discipleship is about how we live, not just the decisions we make, not just the things we believe, but a state of being. It's not just a decision that we make once and then we go on and we say, yeah, that happened 15 years ago and so, so I'm a disciple, I'm a follower of Jesus. It's also not just something that we think in our head and yeah, I was at church and we said the Apostles' Creed and I didn't even cross my fingers a single time so, so I'm a follower of Jesus because I believe those things in my head. It doesn't affect anything that I do but I believe it in my head. That's not being a disciple, right? It requires all of that. It's a state of being, a way of living, and, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is why I think this is really important, because we've got a lot of lifestyle choices that are available to us. Uh, I mean, you, you probably passed by half a dozen of them on your way here this morning. There are all kinds of things that we can do, and most of them don't ask as much of us as Jesus does. And, and so if following Jesus is something that I can just fit in a box that I can just leave behind and isn't really that important until I pick it up again, what's the point? 
But that's not what Jesus has for us. That's not what Jesus offers to us. And if we do treat our faith that way, then we miss out on the best of what God has to offer. We miss out on the abundant life that Jesus promises us. And if we treat it that way, I think it's a problem for people who aren't part of the faith because why would they ever sign up for that if that's all it is? But if we follow Jesus as a way of life, it has a way of transforming not only us, but the world around us as well. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, and we're going to turn to the scriptures. You heard the scripture that we were talking about. We read from Matthew chapter 4. This is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So in this scripture, he's just been baptized and went into the, um, into the wilderness to be tempted and uh, for a time of prayer and fasting. After he came out of that, his cousin John was arrested, and so he returned to, to his home in Galilee. Um, he, his home was Nazareth, hence Jesus of Nazareth. So if you didn't ever put that together, that's why he's called that. Um, after that, he, he moved moved to Capernaum, which was his home. Capernaum's um, just right off the Sea of Galilee. It's also the home of, of Simon and Andrew. Simon, who, as we heard, would soon be called Peter because Jesus gave him a nickname and it stuck. But Jesus moved there into this town where, where these fishers lived. And, uh, and so uh, if, as you're thinking about that, you can see this picture of, of a real first century fishing boat. This was found off the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and, and it had been covered in, in mud and all kinds of things, and so it was preserved. And just a few years ago, they were able to, to preserve that much of it. And um, you can kind of see the lights. It was impossible to get a good picture because they had to keep the lighting low so that it didn't age it um, any more than it already was. That's my excuse for bad photography. But you can imagine the kind of boat that people like Simon and Andrew would have been sitting in and, uh, and, and imagine that. Well, so they were fishers. There were two sets of brothers who were fishermen. We had Simon and Andrew, and then we had James and John. And in, this, in the first century, whenever the Bible talks about fishermen, there were actually three kinds of, um, of people that could be. And so um, there was the first kind, which was basically a tax collector. So they owned the, the franchise, and then they could sell licenses to business owners who would then be licensed licensed in order to fish. So, so the first kind was basically a tax collector who sold licenses. The second kind was, was a small business owner, um, maybe not so small, but they would own or lease boats, and then they would hire workers who would actually do the fishing for them. And so that's, that's the second kind. And then the third kind is the laborers themselves, the people who actually did the, fish, did the fishing. Now, there's some overlap there, and uh, if you're a small business owner, you know that, that you get to do the work as well. So, uh, so people who owned businesses frequently would fish as well. But, but we think, scholars think, that um, Simon and Andrew and James and John were probably in that second category, that, that their family owned a fishing business. They probably had several boats, and then they were able to hire laborers who would do the fishing for them. And, and so why this matters is they, weren't, they had a stable income. They had probably a, a middle-class standard of living. They were also educated and probably had some knowledge of Greek. That was standard for um, people living at, at that class level. And so it wasn't like they were in a desperate situation and, and looking for a way out whenever Jesus showed up. They, they had a solid, solid um, profession, solid business, and, and were able to rely on that. But in comes Jesus, and as he frequently does, he, he kind of turned their world upside down. So, so Simon and Andrew were in their boat, and it was just a normal fishing day, as far as we know, and they had just cast their nets into the water and, and were waiting to see what they were going to catch. And, and Jesus walks up along the shore of Galilee, and he called out to them. The first thing that he said to them, as far as we know, they had never met before. As far as we know, this was the beginning of his ministry, so they probably had never even heard of Jesus. And the first thing that he said was, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Can you imagine somebody walking up to you out of the blue and just calling out, follow me? I would call back, no! Like, that sounds like a trap. 
But, and Jesus asked them to leave everything and follow him. Whenever he said, follow me, it was not, obviously, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have social media, but it wasn't like, follow my Instagram. He meant physically, get up and follow me. Leave behind what you have and follow me. Say goodbye to your business, to your boats, to your families, to the town that you've known probably since the time you were born, and let's go. Follow me. He was asking them to give, them their, to give him their entire lives, to leave everything so that they might follow him. That follow me that Jesus gives to them is also what he asks of us. It looks different for us today, but he asks for our entire lives as well. But I think too often we replace follow me with, with something that's smaller than that, something that's less encompassing and easy to fit in a box. But too often we replace follow me with believe these propositions or do these things. We reduce faith to just a list of things that you believe. And that's important. We wouldn't say the Apostles' Creed at the beginning of every service if what you believe isn't important. But what you believe has to absolutely affect what you do. It also can't be reduced to just a list of things that we do. And we've probably run into people who, who see faith as basically a list of things you should not do. That's not appealing to very many people. I don't like faith as a list of prohibitions. I've got better things to do than just try not to mess up. That's not what faith is. That's not what Jesus asks of us. And so it's much, much more than that. And yet it's so easy for us to reduce that. Whenever Jesus called those disciples and asked them to follow him, he was asking them to become his disciples. That Greek word for disciple really just literally means student or, or apprentice. And, uh, and so he was asking them to become his student, but, but it was much different than what we see for students today. It was totally different. You know, today, if you're a student, you, you go to classes, you write papers, and, and, but then you get to go home. And, and in between, you, know, you, you do your homework, but it's basically confined to just a part of, of your schedule. For them, it was all-encompassing. It was your entire life was devoted to being this person's disciple, to being their student or their apprentice. This is how Rowan Williams describes what it meant to be a disciple in the first century. The essence of being a student was to hang on your teacher's every word, to follow in his or her steps, to sleep outside their door so not to miss any pearls of wisdom falling from their lips, to watch how they conduct themselves at the table, how they conduct themselves in the street. If you were a disciple in that culture, your whole life was centered around your master, taking in everything that they had to offer, listening to their every teaching, trying to absorb all of their wisdom, watching everything that they did so you might learn their way of life, so you might be able to share their teachings and you might be able to actually model that way of life for others. Now, if you're a college student today, don't do this with your professors. Do not follow them home and sleep outside their door. If you do, you'll get a restraining order. And do not say, my pastor told me to do this. I do not have your back if you do that. <laughs> but in that culture, that's what it meant to be a student, was to hang on their every word, to try to take in everything that they had. Can you imagine that, having that attitude toward Jesus, trying to take him in, trying to be in his presence all the time? And yet that's what Jesus asked for us. That's what Jesus asked of those disciples, was to leave everything and to follow him, to leave everything that they had and everything that they knew and follow this guy that they had never met. And that's the same thing that Jesus asks of each of us. Now, it looks different for us today. For most of us, that probably doesn't mean leaving our homes, leaving our families, leaving our jobs behind. For some of us, it might. I don't want to close that door because some people do have that calling on their lives. But for most of us, it means giving everything to God, giving everything to Christ and following in the place that we are. It means that our habits, that even our, our lifestyle choices, even 
what kind of coffee we have in the morning, that all of those things we have to offer up to Christ, that, that they're his, that everything that we have is his, all of our money, all of our possessions. It means that our relationships are a part of our, of our following him. It means that our job, the way that, that we work, relates to him. Everything is under him. And we subject that to his way of life. Because whenever Jesus invites us to follow him, he's not just inviting us to to make a lifestyle choice of the way that we spend an hour or so on Sunday morning or even the way that we spend 15 minutes at the beginning of the day. Did anyone grow up with morning quiet time? Like that was the measure of whether you're a Christian or not for for me at some point. But, But that's not what he calls us into. He calls us into a way of life, a new way of living that totally transforms everything for us and for the world around us. Because whenever we give ourselves completely to Jesus, transformation occurs in each of us and in the world. Whenever we give ourselves to Jesus, Jesus changes us, and then we take that change out into the world and things change around us whenever people see the way that we share the light that Christ shines through us. But it doesn't happen automatically. We have to offer it. We have to offer ourselves to Christ because he gave us the gift of, good, of, of free will and, and he doesn't overpower that. And, and we're free to resist God, to say no and not to follow him. And God doesn't force our hand. God respects our decision. But if we offer ourselves to Christ, if we give him everything that we have and everything that we are, he will totally change us. He'll use us to change the world around us. And that's what he does call us to. That's what he invites each of us to. As he called the disciples, Jesus calls each of us to follow his radical way of life. What do you think of when you hear the word radical? This takes me back to, if you're my age, you probably think of it too, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Anyone? So, so that's what we think of. But, but if you think about radicals, they're people who are on the fringes of society, maybe people who started a commune somewhere far away and don't really wash their hair and do all kinds of weird stuff. Or we think about people who, who are totally at odds with society. But it's not by accident that at the beginning of this service, whenever we talked about our goal, it was to help non-religious and non-active Christians become radical Christ followers. And your leaders didn't choose that word because it sounded good or would look good on stationery. They chose it because that's what Jesus asked for us, to become radical Christ followers, that, that we would make that the very center of who we are. Now, what it doesn't say is, is to make us regular church attenders, now, I don't want to say don't, like, I am so glad that you're here this morning, and I hope that you'll come back. I think this is important. I wouldn't waste my time here if I didn't. But it's not the point. It's not the point. Following Jesus is. It also doesn't say that, that we're here to help people become nice people. Like, that's great. Don't go and be a jerk. But it's not why we're here. We're here to follow Christ. It's something much, much bigger than that. Because whenever we follow Jesus in his way of life, He takes us to places we never could have gone on our own, never could have even dreamed were possible. Whenever he called those four men, they they were content where they were. They had good lives, and there's nothing wrong with fishing, but God had something much greater in mind for them. And so that day, one commentator calls it the first miracle of Jesus. Like, immediately they got up. All he said was, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. And they left. I mean, that's a pretty big miracle. I can't get my kid to do anything that I say. But they left, and they followed him, and they made his way their way of life. And just right after that, they saw people healed. They saw him doing amazing miracles. They got to witness the teaching of the Messiah, the Son of Man. They got to hear things that that we can only read about. They got to be there. At the most intimate moments of Jesus' life, they were with him. The night before he crucified his last supper, those four were there. 
Whenever he rose from the dead, they were the ones who got to see him in person, the risen Christ. After he ascended and they received the Holy Spirit, they were the ones who went out into the world, who, who taught the things that he had taught, who performed miracles, who spread the good news, the same good news that's been spread to us. Because of the way that they lived, we're here today. Now, it wasn't easy for them. You can imagine leaving was a big sacrifice. That wasn't an easy one for them. And their life wasn't easy after that. Most of them, all but one, died because of following Jesus. Whenever we give ourselves to him, whenever we follow his way of life, that doesn't mean life's going to be easy. In fact, sometimes that'll mean doing things that we could have avoided, enduring things that we could have avoided if we weren't following him. What it does mean is that whenever we follow him, we will experience a life that is more powerful, that is more meaningful than any that we could have on our own. We will experience things that we can only dream of. We will get to be a part of people being healed, of people becoming whole, of people who are excluded for their entire lives finding a home. Just this week, people got to be a part of saving, literally saving lives because they were drilling a water well in Guatemala where people would have died because they didn't have access to clean drinking water. That's what following Jesus made possible for them. I don't know about you, but saving lives isn't like a regular day-to-day thing that I get to do. But they got to be part of that because they were following Jesus. They got to be a part of this amazing thing because they're following his way of life. There's a man named Clarence Jordan. Some of you probably heard of him. He had a PhD in New Testament, a really smart guy, but, but he decided instead of working in the academy that he wanted to start a farm. And so in South Georgia, he started a farm called Koinonia Farm. That's, that's the same word for fellowship that's in Acts 2.42. But they started this farm that was going to be an intentionally integrated community in the 1940s in South Georgia. And so in this community, there were white people and black people working alongside each other in the Jim Crow South. I think even imagining that that was possible must have been a tremendous leap of faith, but they did it. And and as they were working, they had all kinds of, of, of difficulties that they faced and all kinds of opposition. Sometimes people would shoot guns at the farm while they were there. One day while they were working, a, a man who lived there tells the story. They, they were there working, and Klansmen came, the members of the KKK came, and said, we don't like what you're doing here, and if you don't leave, we're going to kill you. And what Clarence Jordan said was, well, we wouldn't be the first Christians to die for our faith. Can you imagine responding like that whenever your life is threatened? He said, we're not going anywhere. I can't imagine that kind of courage but it came from his following Jesus. The the same man who told the story said, more than anyone I knew, he thought like Jesus. I would love for that to be said of me someday. I'd love to live a life that deserves having that said. But Clarence Jordan knew following Jesus as a way of life. And because he was willing to do that, he was able to create a reality that in the Jim Crow South, no one could have imagined. And even whenever his life was threatened, he could stand with courage because of his faith, because he was following Jesus. Our faith may not take us to, well, it won't take us to the Jim Crow South, but it may not take us to whatever the, the equivalent is today. But if we follow Jesus, if we make him his way of life and open our entire lives to his transformation, we'll be able to stand against people who threaten us and know that he is with us no matter what. We'll be able to do things that we couldn't even have imagined. The world will be changed because of what God does through us. All that is possible whenever we follow Jesus. And so the words that he said to those first disciples, he says to us today, follow me. So he says to each of you and to me today, follow me. 
And whether you've never taken a step on that journey before, or maybe you've taken many and are contemplating your next one, that's, that's the invitation that he gives to us. It's not just to follow him as a lifestyle choice, but to take on his way of life, to make ourselves his students, his followers, and to devote everything we have to him. So I, I want to invite you today, I want to give you a few action steps and uh, I'm not going to tell you the entire Jesus way of life. That's, that's another sermon series that maybe you'll see down the road in a few years, but I am going to let you get to lunch today. One of the ways that we start, though, is we start by putting ourselves in Jesus' presence. Like those students of, of rabbis back in the first century, by making, him, ev- making his presence our everything, hanging on every word that he says, everything that he does, and, and making everything that he gives us, taking that in and soaking it in and just dwelling on it. So one way that I want to invite you to do so, we do that in many ways, by, by worshiping like we're doing today, by reading the Bible, by praying, by taking communion. But, but the way that I want you to focus on this week is by reading the Gospels. So I want you to read part of one Gospel each day this week. Now, in, in your sermon notes, I, I mistyped it, and it says each week, but I want you to do it more than once a week. But I want you to take time each week to read, each day this week, I've got to get it right, each day this week and read from the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, just pick one. And if you don't know where to start, start right after this passage. It'll take you into Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And if you want to learn from our rabbi, there's not much better place to start than that. But take time each day to read, and you're not reading for completion. So, so if, if you finish the Gospel of Matthew this week, then you're not doing what I'm asking you to do. I, I know that's hard for some of you, and I'm sorry. I'm, I'm one of you too. I get it. But I want you to read something short, maybe even a paragraph, but really chew on it, take it in, read slowly, and ask Jesus, what are you showing me about your way of life? And I think if we do that, he'll show us what it looks like to live his way of life. Jesus comes to us through scripture, through prayer, through worship, but he also comes to us in our everyday life. And, and so I also want to challenge you at least once a day this week, and maybe set a reminder on your phone if you need to, but pause to ask where Jesus is and how you might join him. One of the things we believe is that whenever Jesus ascended into heaven, he he didn't just leave us high and dry, but he continues to be present to us through the Holy Spirit and is still at work in the world. And our task is not to take Jesus to people or to take Jesus into the world. It's to find out wherever he already is and join him. So I want to invite you to just ask yourself, where is Jesus in this moment and how can I join him? So what that might look like is if you're at work and, and you come across someone who's, who's just having a rough time, who's struggling, maybe you see Jesus comforting them and, and you realize, I need to go alongside them and comfort them as well. I need to be there for that person. Maybe you notice someone who's on the outside who no one ever talks to and, uh, and you, Jesus wants someone to talk to them and he's tapping you on the shoulder. Maybe for, I, I know we're all Edmund people and we have busy schedules. Maybe what Jesus is saying to you is, you've been running all day. Why don't you just pause and breathe and hang out with me for a minute? I, I don't know what it is. Maybe Jesus will, tell you, will take you somewhere that you never could have imagined. But, but I think the reason that our church has gotten involved in drilling 19 water wells is because someone saw that Jesus was at work helping save lives by providing access to clean drinking water. And they said, we've got to go and be a part of what he's already doing. Because whenever we join with what Christ is doing, our lives are transformed. Whenever we join with what he's doing, the world is transformed. And it all starts with saying yes, whenever Jesus says, follow me, whenever he gives us that invitation. And it will not be easy, and there will be things that are so hard that will completely break your heart, that will ask you, why did I ever come on this journey? 
but you also in that encounter a love that is greater than you could have ever known, a purpose that is greater than you could have ever devised for yourself, and more meaning than you ever could have found. Whenever we say yes, when he says, follow me. And whenever it's difficult, remember our memory verse, because he'll send us into difficult things. But our verse, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, because we never go alone. Thanks be to God. As we enter into a prayer time, I want to invite you to join me in a responsive prayer. It'll be on the screen, so let's pray together. Jesus said, come follow me, and the disciples heard him and immediately followed. God, who is with us now and every day, help us listen for your call. Lord, we hear and follow you now. God, who invites us on the adventure of a lifetime, help us join this life with you. Lord, we hear and follow you now. God, who says, come follow me, help us find friends to invite on the journey. Lord, we hear and follow you now. Let's pray. Lord, we hear you, and we seek to follow you now in everything. Not just in the hour we spend on Sundays, not just in our quiet time in the morning, but every single moment of our lives, with every aspect of who we are and what we do. Lord, we offer ourselves to you, and we pray that you would form us that you would pour out your spirit into us, that you would help us become the people that you made us to be, and you would send us to do the amazing works that you've dreamed up, and that through the work that you do in us, people would experience Jesus. They would experience his love, his acceptance, and that as we do this work, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. All these things we pray in the name of the one we follow, Jesus. And as he taught us, so we now pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.